My journey has been one of returning from the darkness and stepping out into the light once more. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivial. While you're sitting trying to figure that out, this is my podcast. Allegedly. <laughs> Logos and Trivial podcast. <laughs> I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivial. Maybe you're also Logos and Trivial. While you're trying to figure out how to pronounce that and what it means to you, let me introduce today's special guest. I have with me the man, the myth, the stone fruit. It's Mr. Jack Peach. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. Appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Chance. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Now, Jack is a is a young man I ran into on Twitter. He's a very thoughtful fella. Uh, he's been writing about sort of honor and um, manners and he takes a, a a much more thoughtful look at some of the issues affecting society and and writes about them in a way that gives people the opportunity to really think about um, maybe some of the contributing factors to what they've been indoctrinated with or or how they have developed their own stance on how they interact with the culture and I have always appreciated Jack's uh, ability to create a conversation around an issue without being sort of uh, too explosive or or uh, creating too much opportunity for thoughtless reactionary responses. That doesn't mean he doesn't get that kind of stuff, but he's, <laughs> he's creating every opportunity to kind of avoid that. Um, and he's also just a cool guy. Uh, I've enjoyed my interactions with him. and And so I guess with that sort of rambling and sparse introduction, Jack, why don't you fill in the gaps on who you are and what you do a little bit, and then we can get this puppy rolling. Sure. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, it's, I think, the first time I've ever been called a stone fruit in my life, but I'll, uh, I'll take it every single time. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's great to be on here, as, uh, as you said, uh, being on Twitter for a while. I actually have a little story to tell the people, actually. You may not remember this, but I think you are the third, what I call, influencer or whatever to follow me, actually, on Twitter when I had probably less than 100 followers, maybe. And that actually gave me quite a lot of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Quite a lot of belief to carry on. You and uh, mutual friend Chief Chuck both followed me the same night. Uh, and I always remembered that as it kind of gave me like, oh, am I doing the right thing here? So I'd also like to say thank you very much for that. You played a, a bit of a part in this online story. So, yeah. But I think it's uh, quite nice that you picked up on the fact that I try not to be too too divisive in what I'm saying, even though, like, some of my takes in the modern world would be considered, yeah, like, well, definitely anti-mainstream in the, in the modern liberal world we live in. But I do try not to fall into the trap of being too divisive on purpose because... It is Twitter at the end of the day, so you have to pr uh, produce a little bit of flourish on it to get to get people to engage. But we've got to be careful today not to fall into these traps of just being needlessly divisive to yes, generate engagement, but also you know we do have a certain uh, responsibility as people on Twitter. People follow us; we have a voice, even if it's a small voice in them. In, in the scheme of things, but people do hear what we say. And I think uh, with that as a bit of a responsibility, every person who follows you is a person behind that. 
and sometimes that gets lost i think a little bit with uh some people so i think it's quite uh quite nice that you picked up on that because that's actually a philosophy i have for the way i do tweet and the way i do try and write so it's good that uh that actually comes across so i'd like to say thank you for that it's a very very good compliment well i'm a big believer in credit where credit is due mm. so so look man um I suppose one of the things that is most obviously interesting about you is your expat status. And I guess I wonder, um, I think that would be a pretty good place to, to really start the conversation off is what kind of drove you to leave the nest, so to speak, and, and end up in a part of the world where it's not necessarily obvious that you, you would have ended up in. I think that's like, there's a long story behind that. Obviously of all these things, everything in your life is connected, but uh, the kind of, I'll give the medium length version, so I won't cut it too briefly. But uh, basically uh, as growing up as most people in the West do today, I grew up within the sort of liberal culture, the liberal mindset of uh, kind of hedonistic pursuit really. Uh, there's no, uh, there was nothing really like in Britain anyway okay so in Britain there's a big drinking culture from a young age and most people start drinking about 14 years old between 14 and 16 depending and some people even earlier and yeah I kind of fit it into the mold and basically very quickly my my identity became around drinking pretty much uh, and that started at 14 and carried on to the moment I left but I needed to leave because I knew that in the environment I was in, I just couldn't couldn't stay there. I didn't have the strength of will, or I just too surrounded by people who uh, were people I'd known all my life and been drinking with all my life. That I just knew I had to go. I had to leave, and I actually had some quite good opportunities before I left. Uh, but so when I was doing my my master's degree, I was basically I knew my life was kind of falling apart, even though like from the outside it looked okay but inside and for me personally I knew that like my life wasn't good so I kind of I just decided to leave basically I had some money saved up uh, from yeah I, I saved up some money and then I just booked a flight and never came back <laughs> basically although I always planned to come back so uh, but yeah you know life happens as as it does uh, met my now wife and yeah, the rest is history, as they say. So that's why I stayed out here. I probably wouldn't have stayed out if it wasn't for meeting her. But so, so why, when you went and bought your ticket, why did you buy a ticket to Thailand? Um, actually, I'd been to Thailand with my parents when I was about twelve or thirteen, so I felt like it was uh, an easy kind of place to go because I had at least some kind of uh, pre. I had, I, it wasn't a complete unknown, okay? So I thought uh, I can go there, I can kind of find my footing a bit easier. Uh, and I didn't have any other plan other than that, other than I was gonna head down south. I knew the direction I wanted to, and like I wanted to go in from Bangkok. So I flew to Bangkok and I only actually stayed there one night because I made some bad decisions. That's a good story, but I'll, I'll leave that out. And I stayed there <laughs> one night and then, and then left. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah, as I said, I knew I had to get out of that environment, but 
the environment was still well within me at that point. And anyone who's actually been to Thailand will tell you that Thailand's probably not the best country to go if you want to avoid hedonism. Uh, it's certainly got a reputation for that if you want to fall into those patterns. But actually, after I did that, I kind of, uh, I, I did actually straighten out after that one night. Actually, funnily enough, it was almost like the sharp shock I needed. Like I traveled all this way and just ended up drinking for silly amount of hours straight and yeah uh it kind of like i'd left the country but i hadn't changed at all and that actually was a bit of a sharp wake up for me and i kind of sorted myself out a bit after that but um but yeah i traveled around asia all around asia and then ended up yeah i live in thailand now which uh is was never the plan it's just where the work was basically it was where both me and my wife could work together that's the only reason we're here actually like it's not the only reason, but that was the original reason we lived here is because there's work in Thailand for expats, which there isn't in other countries, or at least the opportunities are a lot smaller. So, hmm. so you kind of brought it up and I, I was going to ask, you know, uh, when you leaving behind a life of hedonism, it, you have to be very firm in your resolve to do that because I can speak from, from personal experience and I'm, I'm what you would call, um, mostly a teetotaler. Yeah. I, 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 I'm mostly not engaging in any sort of a substance intake or, or anything like this, but sometimes I do, I, I like it, but that's, that's just my, my personal deal. But the point I'm trying to make with this beyond that is just to say, when you, when you are surrounded by it, I mean, you change your environment and then you found yourself in an environment that's very much the same as what you were trying to run from. And I think that's the case sort of regardless. I mean, you could go to a monastery and spend eight hours a day kneeling in, in meditation and prayer and, and eat some gruel and do some chores. But other than that, you sort of can't really use your environment uh, or, or move to a new country or move to a new state or, you know, move to a new province or whatever and, and remove yourself because it's so predominantly available everywhere. It's, it's ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. Drinking is ubiquitous. Drugs are ubiquitous, uh, you yeah. know. And so I guess I wonder, after that, after that one night, what was your... What was your thought process like? How 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 are you certain that you were good at that point, or or what did you what did you do to make certain that you were going to then leave behind? Because you said something interesting. You said even though I, I had changed my location, my my thought process was the same, and you had that awakening. But how did that unfurl, or how did that reveal itself to you? So the best way to say there was definitely no certainty in my mind that I was mm. going to stay away from it at that point. I knew I wanted to and I knew I had to in, in reality because uh, I'm not – many things I may be, but I'm not a complete idiot. And I knew that there was uh, – there, there needed to be change. But the way it kind of unfolded was I tried to just avoid those situations even like – because when you're traveling here, uh, I was traveling like the budget traveler, hippie traveler style kind of thing uh, in hostels etc because I, I went on my own I didn't go with any threat any friends on purpose um, because basically to avoid the places where you're going to do it because 
there's certain hostels where they're they're a party hostel. If you go there, you're going to party. It's it's doesn't take a genius to work that out. So uh, I try to avoid those places. As soon as I kind of identified people who I thought might be uh, like bad influences on me or people who have that kind of mindset, I try to avoid them. Uh, in in general, when you're traveling in Asia anyway, those kind of people tend to be very boring anyway. Uh, they tend to be very, yeah, they're, they're focused on one thing only, you know, and very egocentric and not particularly self aware or self-reflective so they're not the kind of people i really like anyway so uh, that wasn't particularly difficult but uh as it went on yeah it gets easier over time but i i, I eventually actually lived it for quite a while in in indonesia which is a muslim country and that's where i really kicked it because i you could get alcohol there but it's you can't just walk into a shop and get it there's about the place i lived there was only about three places you could buy alcohol in the whole city. So, uh, and there was like one strip of kind of clubs and stuff. So you just avoid those areas. And that, then it was a lot easier. Like when you've not getting tempted constantly, it's easier to resist temptation. It's, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, uh, yeah, obvious to be honest. But, uh, and it's one of the things that I try and I've wrote about before on, on Twitter and also a couple of my blog articles that if you actually want to, change your life you don't have to like manifest that will inside you we often talk about this on twitter like you've got to be like self-driven you've got to like just yeah just resist the temptation when it's there and it's like yeah of course that that is true but it's going to be a hell of a lot easier if that temptation is not even there like you to manifest that will doesn't take the same strength and you know you might be able to do it three of the four times but maybe the fourth time you you give in right uh it i mean depends how not everyone is somebody who's completely intensely self-motivated. So uh, your environment is very, very important. It's actually one of the things that has led me to kind of uh, think about the way the world and the way I do as well is because I think the problem we have in Western society is that the environment uh, is very, very negative, just the general environment. And it makes most people therefore have a pretty negative experience of life or hmm. be difficult to to live in a way that i think would be conducive to a happy life so the way i see it is we have to kind of reshape that that environment because of that uh, actually yeah and I, and I also think this is purposefully done uh, as well which we could probably get into a bit later as well if you want because uh, there's a few few different avenues of that but yeah i don't know where you want to go with that Sure. So one of the things that this has uh, brought up in me is there's something that happens when you change significantly, uh, especially in, in terms of what we're talking about here, which is uh, you can, if you start clouding your vision, we'll say at an early age, there's a lot of <laughs> development. Uh, maybe doesn't happen or happens unconsciously, you become a person different from the person that you were when you uh, sort of started the process, but there's not a lot of um, honesty or, or self-reflection going on during this time. And sometimes you you cloud your vision intentionally because you're trying to run away from some of this stuff. And, and one can turn into the other pretty easily. And I guess... Mm. 
I'm kind of curious how, once you made the shift in your life, what were some of the things that were revealed to you about yourself by making this change and being willing to sort of take control of who you are as a person and then realizing that there was all this, there was all this stuff inside of you that needed to be addressed and needed to be, um, you know, that you needed to take responsibility for a lot of the things that maybe you had been running from, whether consciously or unconsciously and, and how that has sort of, changed your trajectory or, or shaped your trajectory now that you're living a more conscious, um, intentional life? Yeah, I mean, completely has completely changed the, the way that my life has lived. There's a hundred different things that can, uh, that can come out of that. One thing that really sparks in my mind as you say that is the, the reflection of myself on my country, England. So when I grew up, I had a pretty negative view of England, really, uh, in some ways still do. Uh, but I realized now that that was, that was kind of a reflection of my life, basically. It was the fact that uh, for quite a long time, my life was pretty shitty uh, based on what I was doing. And I was making, I was then projecting that, basically, and projecting it onto the country and saying it's because England's shit. And while I do believe there was some, there is definitely an element of the culture in Britain that led me to that point, and I think that's definitely true, it's, there's still a point where you do have to take responsibility. You do have to take absolute responsibility that, like, yeah, the, the uh, internal shapes the external. And that was one thing that definitely came out of that, um, came out of that change. In general, just taking responsibility. I wasn't someone who particularly took responsibility for things before. Um, I wasn't, I mean, I always have to couch it because I, I, I wasn't like, a, like, I sometimes try and make myself sound like I was a complete fuck up before because I wasn't, I, I held a job down. I, I, I got through my university and got good grades and got through it all and managed my life reasonably effectively. It was just, it was, it was pretty miserable. <laughs> I was just pretty miserable, you know? So, uh, but there was definitely there was definitely a point when I realized like, I've got to just do something about this. There's no point like blaming other people. There's no point just acting out of it. And that's when I initially bought the ticket. I think I kind of made the decision uh, unconsciously before that, that I was, I just decided I can't stay where I was living. I just can't stay. There's no way, like there's nothing for me here. Like i I mean, there, there is actually, now I look back on it and yeah, my family's there and I, I can't, that's one of the things I really miss. I actually have a very great family. My, my parents weren't a big part of this. They, everyone's parents uh, makes mistakes, but I have a very good relationship with my parents. I, I love them very greatly uh, and my extended family as well. I don't get to see them uh, as often as I'd like, but we all have to make sacrifices. But, uh, but I had this this view that, I had to change. And once I did make that decision, I also realized, as I mentioned before, that it's not just making the decision. You have to carry on every day to make the decision. You have to take that decision every day. You don't just do it once and suddenly your life is turned around. No. And that took a little bit longer. That, 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 mm. that, that, uh, process sort of probably, I mean, I'm still in the process actually. I, you never, I don't think you ever end that. So, uh, that's not something that, just one day and suddenly everything's easy no you have to every day make that conscious choice um and i think that's actually one of the great strengths of this scene on twitter is that it kind of 
acts as a if you're following the right people in the self-improvement sphere that's one of the greatest things i think about it is you can kind of reprogram other people's minds because i've seen that also happen to me on twitter following when i first found this area a couple of years ago uh i it actually improved my life greatly because i i was following the advice of these people who are a few stages further ahead in life and they're saying every day okay go to the gym go to the gym go to the gym i thought all right i'm gonna start going to the gym then and you know a th- couple of yeah a couple of years later you, you yeah exactly you feel great right uh, you look better you feel more confident i think I think that's a, on its total platitude on Twitter, but I think the most life-changing piece of advice that you can actually give on Twitter is go to the fucking gym as, as a man, honestly. I really do think that's, that was a, another point which really kind of supercharged uh, potential. I think if you've grown up badly there's, or you've made mistakes or you've got into bad habits, there's a long process. You're never going to go from the person who's in a situation of very bad habits to the person who's a, a, externally a success to other people when they meet you. There's, uh, there's first, you've got to deprogram those habits first. And that's hmm. the hardest part. Uh, and that's what I did when I first went traveling and probably my first year or maybe year and a half is I had to actually just actively deprogram the bad habits I had. Uh, and then after that, you can start manifesting sort of the good ones. And once you get the idea of what's good, you have to kind of cement them. And it, I reckon it probably took me, well, took me four years in total to this point. Uh, and I'm definitely not perfect. I'm definitely not there. But that, that's a long process. You know, it's, it's, it's not something you're going to switch on to overnight. Um, and I think that's one of the, the great benefits, though, of this, this area of Twitter, even though for people who have been around for a little bit longer, it may get a little bit boring for, for, for us, right? You see that on the timeline, someone talking about going to the gym. It's like, okay, I've seen that literally a million times. But for the person who's just starting or maybe six months in, like, that, is a, that is a programming process in their life that can make their life much better. So I, I kind of have to weigh that up between my own interests and also the, like the interests of others and what's actually going to be most helpful. You know, I, I think that's uh, something we, we occasionally forget about. Yeah, and, and there's something to be said for, for programming. I mean, people, people who are familiar with me uh, understand that I'm, I'm quite... I'm quite big on programming my book on common mentality. It's, there's a lot of that in there because I had to, you know, you talked about how at a certain point you just have to run away from hell mm. because it, it, hell is pretty obvious when you're in it, you look around and you, and you go, I'm fucking miserable. This is, mm-hmm. this is not how I want to be, who I want to be, where I want to be. Uh, I think probably anywhere is better than here. And so you go, whether whether psychologically or physically or both, you just have to leave the space that you're in. And and what happens is things start to clarify uh, mm. or, or solidify or, or, you know, the fog of the fog of war, the, or the, the, the smoky blindness of hell starts to lift and, and you see potential out there, but heaven's less obvious than hell, I think, because that's sort of what you want to make it. The, the heaven mm. that you're running towards, that's, that's a, that's more of a conscious choice hell hell's pretty concrete in what it is it's like okay i'm gonna lie i'm gonna cheat i'm gonna steal i'm gonna hurt myself i'm gonna hurt other people it's there's not 
it's like the screw tape letters in a way, you know, it's like, look, the, the, the game plan has been the same since the beginning of time, but heaven or the, the meaningful life, that's, that's very different because then you're embracing the unique parts of yourself and, and seeing how you can build them out into the world and, and what you can make of it. And, and it's an endless process. You know, you can never really get to the point where you say, well, uh, I've a hundred percent achieved every bit of my dream and I can see nothing further. So I guess uh, now's my time to go. Or, or if that does happen, I guess then it's your time to go. Um, but if you're still alive and you still want to be alive, that's because you realize that you have things that you still want to do. Hmm. Um, but I guess what I, what I'm curious about, and, and this can help us maybe transition into some of the stuff you've been writing about, um, talking about on Twitter and producing content around is like you said, going to the gym is important. And that was one of the critical pieces for me was mm. eating right and exercising really uh, helped me shift my mentality when I was ready to make that change. But when you, when you make the conscious effort and then you build that self-respect and that's a critical component is you feel like shit because you're acting like shit. Yeah. And when you make a little change, it's like, okay, look, I can do something. I have this seed within me. I'm going to nurture it and grow, and then it's going to manifest into a garden. But once you start building that self-respect and taking control of your life and taking responsibility for your actions, or even the things that come at you it might not have been your fault, but it's your life and you got to take responsibility for it. Okay. Well, you start to see the attitudes and the behaviors that you used to be exhibiting playing out in the world in front of you and you go, Oh man, there's, there's some things out here that are happening that are not good. They're not good for people. They're not good for the culture. They're problematic in a lot of ways. And I, I wonder sort of once you started that process of building something within so that you could stand on that platform and then look out and go, okay, what does the world really look like now that I have something within me that I'm proud to have or, or more, or something that I, you know, I, Jack, can now look out at the world and say, okay, I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on things. Let's see what the world looks like. What what were, you know, one or two of the things that you you started to look out and go, uh-oh, there's some issues in the world here. And maybe I can, maybe I can talk about them or do something to help uh, enlighten people as to what's going on and maybe shift a couple of minds in a, in a little bit more beneficial direction. So there's a hundred different ways I could go with that, unfortunately, because there's so much wrong with our society, honestly, is the, the, honest, the honest truth. Um, there's two. So I, I want to like maybe rewind a little bit because it can give a bit of context for this. I think having lived through both sides of it, through having been basically an arch hedonist who was yeah partying a lot, sleeping around all the associated accoutrements that come with that kind of lifestyle uh when you actually kind of wake up from that it gives you a completely different perspective okay because you i've i now basically believe that i've seen it from both sides and i can also relate to the thought processes that go through people's heads in that situation because i had the same thought process i know how you're justifying it to yourself i know how you're rationalizing it because i did exactly the same so this does give you like a, uh, a unique perspective. You can, like, I can see both camps at once because I can just go back in time in my brain and go to this part of my, like, 
some part that I've compartmentalized and go, oh, I remember thinking that, I remember doing that. Uh, and this is what this is what I thought in that that time period. I bet they're thinking the same. Fuck, that's stupid though. <laughs> you know, because now I have the 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 real way or the better way uh mm. of viewing it. So the two main areas I really see this from today for me personally is uh one in terms of sex in particular and the way that sex is looked at the way sex is uh, used in our society and number two is also religion and i think the two are probably not uh they're they're not in they're not distinct okay i think that, that because i basically have a general belief that I, be, i believe that religion is premised in an understanding of human biology uh like you can say that's because of it's yeah uh, god or the creator whatever your belief system is created us and therefore obviously knows how humans work or you can look at it in a rationalist perspective that if you prefer that and say yeah these are time tested institutions that have been shown like through human behavior to understand how humans work and how to fix the problems associated with humanity so the main two ways i really see it playing out is is that and that is because as well not only was i hedonist growing up but my my dad was a marxist growing up and i grew up as basically a communist uh, i had that arch liberal arch like anarchistic way to be i was at like when i was a teenager growing up i was at like uh antifa kind of like style like protests like i wasn't like not like today right like but but like the in england we had something called the edl which was the english defense league who were kind of like the opposite arm they're kind of both puppets you know they bust them into a certain location to protest about you know uh, multiculturalism immigration whatever And then the Antifa people will come in and counter protest. And I would go to the, the, some of the counter protests with my dad. I mean, yeah, that's like what we did. So I had this view also that was completely growing up was an arch liberal, arch sort of communist, atheist view on life. Whereas now, uh, I, let's just say the complete opposite. <laughs> like I just realized that that was like the, the logical flaws within that and just the basic, like, just the premises of the like ultra left-wing uh, philosophy is based on are completely flawed. So the whole thing is just built on quicksand. And once you kind of identify that, you realize like, yeah, that's why most of the people involved in this will end up with yeah, mental health problems. They're unhappy, unhealthy. They're seeing, uh, instead of seeing life as it is, they're seeing oppression everywhere rather than seeing that humans are naturally hierarchical and where you, you literally only have to see a group of men socialized to see that humans are naturally hierarchical. There is an un, underlying understanding of somebody who is at the top of the hierarchy, might have a few people below. There's a couple of jostling for position. When someone first meets someone, there's this kind of dominance thing that takes place where you're kind of sussing each other out, even in a social setting that's like not uh, you know, it's not like a competitive setting as it were. It's just, just general socialization. There's always this sussing it out. And then people, once they know each other, they just naturally slot into this hierarchy. So you're never going to get rid of hierarchies, which is basically the premise of all sort of neo-Marxist thought. <laughs> it's basically you, or Marxist thought is there's an oppressor and oppressee and everyone should be equal. And that just, unfortunately, it sounds great in practice, but in reality, it's just, it's just not, it just doesn't keep, just doesn't work it's just not real it's not reality 
unfortunately. Uh, it might work with ants, but it doesn't work with humans. So uh, there's still a queen. <laughs> there's still a queen, exactly. And there's still a soldier class as well. So that's right. But yeah. um, but that is one of the areas where I think I can see it the most. And if I step back a little bit, I said that I believe that religion has a greater understanding of human biology than than even science, in my opinion, uh, because. And I think that's how it kind of plays out. Within religion, there's an implicit understanding of a, of a hierarchy. There's an implicit understanding of gender, uh, gender roles, for example. Uh, and there's also an understanding of human psychology that I think is underappreciated for religion. For example, we were talking about programming, and you, you're big on programming. I haven't read your book, but uh, one of the things that people often talk about, I'm so sorry, <laughs> is... Uh, is Affirmations, right? I've actually got a tweet in drafts about this. And in my opinion, affirmations are just secular prayers. That, that, that's all they are. They're, they're repeating something to yourself about what you desire in life, what you want to be, what you want from, from your life. But unfortunately, uh, as is the product of most of our societies, it kind of loses that connection with the otherworldly or the, the, the humility that comes with the fact that that's coming outside from you rather than inside from you. I think one of the other problems we have in society is we're too, too individualistic, too narcissistic. Um, but when you're praying, what are you doing? You're humbly requesting what you want from your life. In, and if you pray regularly, whether, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Christian, whatever, like you're kind of getting, you're, you're, you are affirming you're reaffirming your thought processes, your desires, what you want, and you're asking for it. And that is, yeah, you're manifesting it if you want to use the, the secular term. Of course, if you're religious, you would say God's providing it for you. It, it's kind of a different way of talking about the same thing, right? So, but the problem is with the secular way is it's, it is a bit too self-centered. Yeah. There's, no, uh, there's no humility in it. And this is one of the problems I... I have with that. It's, it comes from a good place. I'm not like, of course. And uh, but they both actually come out of an understanding of either human psychology or how how we act. And actually, religion is riddled with things like this because uh, growing up, I actually never met like a proper proper religious person growing up in Britain or a proper Christian anyway. Like like there was plenty of Muslims and Sikhs and Hindus where I lived because I lived in a, a very big Indian population in, in the city I come from. But, uh, but growing up, I never met a Christian. All I ever heard about Christians was like caricatures, you know? Uh, and it wasn't until I, and like one of these sort of wake up moments was living in Indonesia and seeing a predominantly Muslim country, but with real practicing faith and noticing that everyone was way happier. People in general had a much better balance of life. And when I started like asking them about things, what the things they were saying, I was like, huh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, like, like when you actually explain it to me, when I'm actually listening to you without the, the delusions of atheism, without saying that you're an idiot because you believe in the sky fairy or whatever, whatever they want to believe, <laughs> put on it. Like as soon as I switched off that, that, that programming I had, basically, it, it all made sense. And that was very eye-opening for me. 
uh, and related to that as well came at the same time was changing like attitudes towards sex and just how dangerous uh, Western attitudes and values towards sex are. Hmm. There's a lot. There's a lot in there. To... Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the things that immediately comes to mind is I. I think to this day, the most interesting and important work that Jordan Peterson has done in a public way are his psychological significance of the Bible lectures. They're, they're mm. fascinating. And, and one of the things, you know, it's not obvious that the, <laughs> but, but really he, he takes a look at stuff and he says, look, this is not, this is not what you think it is. If you think this is just a collection of fairy tales, which not mm. for nothing, but there's a reason that fairy tales have the longevity that they have. There's, there's, yeah. there's, there's codes in there that are subtly uh, transplanted into your mind because you've let mm -hmm. down your guard because it's a fun story. And I always tell people, look, whether or not you believe in the Bible, you should read it because it's going to cause mm -hmm. you to contend with some ideas. It's, it's this idea that you... I don't think everything in there is to be taken at face value. Not at all. I think you're supposed to wrestle with it. That's there's, I mean, there's a story in the Bible about wrestling with God and coming away changed. And that's, it's like, hello, come on. But okay. When I, when I think about the things that you've just said, uh, one of the things I, I kind of, I alternate between being quite frustrated about and, and also just laughing about is as a, as a person, you kind of, you think, okay, well, I need to fill up my vessel with as much positivity as I can, you know, I don't want to poison my waters. And then there's this whole other class of thinking that says, well, there's not even a vessel. That's just a construct. And you go, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I know you think you're pretty smart, but this whole billions of years of evolution thing uh, kind of argues against that. There's a lot more wrapped up into who we are as people than uh, the last 150 years because Marx and Engels um, wrote a book. It's like you can't, it, there's not as much there as you think there is, especially when what you think is there is telling you that there's nothing there. Uh, it's just a, it's one of those things. It's like, well, you keep saying that there's nothing. You keep saying that it's all a construct, and then and then you wonder why you you feel like you don't have any ground to stand on, and that everything's a problem that needs uh, your special solution. When in reality, you you have this space within you, which is where almost all of your work needs to be done, and it's and when you sort of throw that away, I'm a man, but I'm not a man. Uh, you know, there's. I'm, I'm operating within this dominance hierarchy, but that's all just pretend. Um, I have this biology, but that's just a construct. Uh, I live in this society that's organized in a certain way, but that's, that's all just uh, programming. Uh, that, and not, not only is it programming, but it's programming that needs to be uh, contramanded and, uh, and countered because it's not, it's not working for me as the way that I want to operate in the world. It was like, well, there are rules. And, and this yeah. is one of the things that, that makes me laugh in a lot of ways is the atheist scientists. It's like, well, there are rules to physics. Well, there are rules to people too. We're made a certain way. And, and 
it is not obvious, but it really is not obvious uh, that these rules, these psychological rules, these biological rules, they're, they have happened for a reason. Reality is not inefficient. No. To be a human is to be a human, and there are rules that make us such. And when you try to change those rules, you change what it means to be human, and then you're inhuman in a lot of ways. And I guess what I'm trying to get at with this sort of circling around the edges of all of this is that there are there is a process to being a human and when you try to short circuit that process you lose out on some development and some understanding and some wisdom that you need in order to move forward in certain realms of your life and it's just like anything in the gym this is why i think the gym and why i think probably you believe the gym is such a useful tool is because it's hmm. it's periodized progressive resistance training. And I look at that the same way in everything in my life. It's like, okay, well, I, I started out and I lifted this much weight and then I ramped up and then I had to take a step back because I can't just skyrocket forever. I had to reevaluate and then now I'm going up and I'm taking a little step back and then going up. And it's the same thing in your spiritual development. It's the same thing in your skill development, the same thing in your career. Sometimes you got to move sideways. Sometimes you got to take a step back and go, okay, who do I want to be? Where am I at? And where do I want to go? It's not just a, a clear delineated line from where you are now to your, your perfect self. And in regards to, to try to bring this home a little bit and talk about some of the things I want to get into with you here in regards to sex, I think that's one of the greatest disservices that's being done to people now is this cavalier attitude to sex or this uh, sort of this sort of warping of the point of it because yeah on the one hand you have the very necessity of life wrapped up in sex it's it's the creative act of humanity you yep. you procreate and then a new person comes into being and and then there's all the responsibility and all the wisdom and all the thoughtfulness that's required to really help guide a person optimally towards being the best human being that they can be. But there's also wrapped up inside of that, there's also this connection to another person aspect because instinctually you know that if you are engaging in a sexual act with somebody, that there's that potential to create a person. And it's wrapped up in our genetics and our psychology. Okay, who am I procreating with? Or who am I creating the potential to pro procreate with? And, and am I good with that? And the answer for most people, if they're honest, especially promiscuous people, is no. I don't want to have kids with this person. I'm just trying to get mm -hmm. my jolly. And, yep. and when you take that attitude to something that you could use the word sacred or you could use the word uh, of utmost. Dangerous. Yeah, it's, it's dangerous to exactly to veer away mm -hmm. from the idea that this matters. It's, it's not just a construct, or even if it is, it's a construct that's ingrained in, in our biology, which is, this is important because the future of humanity really, literally, actually depends upon my doing this successfully and then raising children successfully to the best of my ability so that they can continue this process. And that's one of the, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of kick this back to you after this, that's one of the things that when you look at sex and then you look at when you look at it through the survival of the species lens a lot of other stuff suddenly becomes very clear you go well okay 
if I'm not procreating or I'm not engaged in this sexual act with somebody who I feel like if I made children with them, the world would be better off for me doing it. You start to look at a lot of the other things that are going on, the way that ideas procreate or mix and then create new ideas. And you go, okay, well, if it's, if it's one poison idea and another poison idea and they make a baby, it's going to be another <laughs> poison idea is probably the case. So I guess I wonder, I'll, I'm not even necessarily going to try to land it. I'll just kind of kick it over to you and, and see where those, those thoughts yeah. and concepts. So there's a, there's quite a, a lot of few, uh, things I can pick up on what you said there. One of the things I really want to start with is that we do have these biologically ingrained feelings in us and like reactions to, towards many things, but particularly sex, because it's hardwired into us, right? We, we, as you say, it's procreation. It's how we create life. It's, in many ways, that is how we find Im or immortality is through creating children. That's how we spread on our genetics, go back, you know, as, as far as you want to go, right? We, we are the immortal remains of our ancestors. So there's, there's huge levels of depth within, within this, like crazy amounts. But humans are cultural animals as well. We are social animals. And we do, as I mentioned way back in the beginning, we do adapt to our environment. Our environment does shape who we are, but that doesn't mean it can take us away from our biology, which is the point we've got to now. There's a general uh, balance that has to be struck between culture and biology in that one emerges from the other in, in one sense, but they both influence each other and they have to be aligned. That's the key. Culture has to align with biology. When they get too far apart, that's when you start seeing problems. That's when you start seeing mental health problems. That's when you start seeing societal problems. That's when you start seeing people burning down buildings because uh, some, you know, well, okay, I won't get into the political side of it, but that's when you start seeing like <laughs> what we're witnessing at the moment, right? So that, that, that is something that has to be known. But the thing we have is that we know this. There's academic research that's been gone into this, which has been weaponized against humans. And that's kind of the crux of my argument in the book that, that weaponized sex is that sex and culture emerge from each other. They're very important. Many of like patriarchal norms regarding like children and, and parental guidance are, are norms that have ar uh, arisen out of our biology to protect people from mm. the bad results of uh, engaging in sex without... Uh, thoughtfulness or consideration of how important it is, which is yeah, what we see now with promiscuity and all kinds of other crazy behaviors that are going on at the moment. And I basically argue that this has been weaponized against humans hmm. uh, because there is, there is academic research that's been done into this. Uh, you, can, you, you can find it if you, if you want to. People know about this. So, uh, and if you look at academia, you look at the way that it's been and you know you can say infiltrated or the way that it, it, it manifests anyway in that it's overwhelmingly left-wing uh, academia it's overwhelmingly so i quote it, a, an article in my book and i put it in one of my twitter threads i did recently where in the uk eight out of ten uh professors label themselves left-wing so this isn't some think tank saying you're left-wing this is them admitting they are left-wing that's 80 percent. that's a huge proportion right and if you look at 
for example, neo-Marxist for, if you look at things like Gramsci, if you look at things like the Frankfurt School and their beliefs, you know, this is all stuff you can trace back academically. They believe that you can pit oppressed groups uh, against each other to create a Marxist revolution. And they believe that's how you're going to be able to do it uh, in, in modern life because yeah, the, uh, the economic conditions shifted from Marxist time. This was like, they, they went to America during the Second World War, but then they went back, but some of them stayed in America. I think one, I forget which one. I want to say Marcuse, but could be wrong. Anyway, that doesn't matter. But uh, <laughs> they carried on doing this in the 60s. And if you look at what happened in the 60s, that was when we got the sexual revolution. That is uh, when you had uh, all the other civil disobedience that was going on and the student protest that was uh, going on. And at the core of all of that was the sexual revolution. Now, they knew the importance of culture, this group. They knew the importance of culture for shaping uh, people. You know, life imitates art, not the other way around. There's a key distinction. Cultural hegemony is, is, it, yeah. is, is real. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is It is completely real, which is why you see controversies at the moment with things like Cuties, the film, right? It's, it's all the same uh, process. And these people in the, in the 60s, they uh, wanted to create an environment that would create tension, okay? And one of the key ways that this happened was through the sexual revolution, as I've mentioned, the invention of the pill through creating a feminism, second wave and third wave feminism, that really uh, was, in my view, we've got to look at how this is manifested, right? You can say whether they did this purposefully or not. I mean, we can't say for sure, right? We don't know their motives, but we can look at what's happened in society. And if you look at society today, you look at my generation, people don't really get in relationships as a result. And if they do, they're certainly not getting married. And if they, even if they get married, they're not having kids until they're 30. So there's this whole uh, like reshaping of what love is, what sex is, what marriage is, everything that's been shook up by this period in the 60s. And at the heart of this is a neo-Marxist think tank group, basically, who wrote all about this. <laughs> they, they literally wrote about it. You can read it. Uh, and I basically feel there's like this murky little section where these people wanted to try and get rid of the family or try to destabilize the family. And this also has a history of Marxism. You can look at Romania. In Romania, I forget the name of the dictator there, but he tried to abolish the family. Didn't work, by the way. He ended up getting executed on uh, Christmas Day live on television, which the whole country watched. That's how hated he was, okay? This was, it was one of the most brutal regimes, I believe, in the Eastern Bloc as well. And uh, the side effect of this, this destabilization of the family in a soft way, through not actually hardcore saying, okay, you can't live as a couple or whatever, but by destabilizing the biological foundations of family life, which is what the patriarchy is, is what sex is, it's what marriage is. All these things are cultural expressions of biology. Okay, so we've basically had a situation where these cultural bedrocks have been underwritten, attacked and destroyed through a hundred different ways. And the, the why, the why this is, is I actually have two different theories on this. I talk about more in the book as well. I go into a lot more detail, of course. Um, but the why is particularly to one, destabilize the family, but also to create 
uh, more dysfunction, okay? Because the Frankfurt School realized that oppressed groups, whatever they may be, they, they labeled them like students, uh, uh, African-Americans and other ethnic groups, uh, and also homosexuals are a big part of it, and other like deviant or oppressed groups. If you can create a situation which makes more dysfunctional people, for example, if you grow up in a single household, uh, it's, this is not obviously like fatalistic. If you grow up in a single household, you can, single parent household, you can you can still be fine, of course. But probabilistically, you're going to have a harder time. And this is backed up in statistics. More likely to be involved with drug abuse, more likely to be involved with crime, less likely to be uh, to succeed at school, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a kind of uh, expression of your ability to socialize and adapt to society, if you know what I mean, because that's the societal norm. So if you can't fit in with the societal norm, you, that, then you've probably got an element of dysfunction, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, through this, uh, you also open up a greater population of people to be able to be sexually exploited. Hmm. So there's two angles. One, uh, it kind of destabilizes society due to removing us from our biology and you know family is the foundation of society as well it's where cultural culture is reproduced it's where people are safest it's where women are safest it's where children are safest a very un uh, unpalatable truth is that children who grow up in single parent uh, households are way more likely to be sexually abused it's it's tragedy unfortunately but it's a reality that is not nice to hear, but is an unfortunate truth. So when you have these things that destabilize the family, it also makes people more likely to be able to be uh, sexually exploited, not just as children, but also as adults, because they've not witnessed dual parent households and how a husband and a wife should treat each other, how they should behave towards each other. As kids, they've not witnessed that, so they can't mimic it, right? Uh, which is how kids tend to learn. They learn with their eyes more than, more than their ears. So through this, not only has there been like a destabilizing of society, but there's also been an opening up of, to sexual exploitation of both women and children, basically. Um, and there's a lot of other ways this occurs as well. I'm just sort of dealing with the more sort of broad strokes here. Uh, and how they've done this is not is through cultural institutions, uh, academia, Hollywood, uh, many other different things. And if you look at, you know, uh, if you want to connect the dots between like these cultural institutions and the sexual abuse aspect of it, I mean, you, you don't have to look very far in history to see that there's sexual exploitation and sexual per perversion at the tops of these industries. If you look at even recently, things like Harvey Weinstein, if you look at people like Alison Mack, you go back in history people like gregory peck and it's not exactly or if you watch the film an open secret that will show you where how this kind of goes on as well there's a history of these institutions being involved with sexual exploitation and then the way that they present things not just in the hard cases like things like cuties which is very obvious but there's also very subtle plays in the way that they uh promote uh like gender dynamics, for example, how people uh, are supposed to behave in relationships, like 90s rom-coms, the woman is always 
very promiscuous, but still finds Mr. Right, which can happen. But if you actually look at it statistically, it doesn't happen. <laughs> Unfortunately, again, the more sexually promiscuous a woman is, the more likely she is to divorce. It just, mm. It's in the statistics. And I would argue that's because it's ingrained in biology for a hundred different reasons that uh, I lay down in the book in great detail because when you talk about issues like this, you've got to be very careful not to take a little bit of information and veer way off, you know, like you can see hmm. these three, you see three dots and then you draw a picture of Pinocchio, right? That's, <laughs> that's not what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to get as many as you can. And then like, yeah, you might not get it all right, but you're going to get at least there's something to this, right? And when hmm. you look at all kinds of other stuff, you know, look at the promotion of, uh, for example, I, 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 I found out in the book within, I can't remember exactly the, the dates now, but uh, Britain and California, obviously California is always leading the charge on these things in America because of the federal system, uh, enshrined basically the same divorce laws in the same year, both in 1969. And it was at exactly the same time as the pill was being promoted and a, a few other uh, cultural things that, and technological advances which led to this position. And it's just, when you see worldwide things that kind of occur at the same time, there, there, there is more than likely that's a coordinated push. These things don't tend to happen in isolation. It's, hmm. uh, it's a bit of, uh, obviously you've got to be careful not to draw too many conclusions from too few data points. But when you look at everything in total, if you look at the culture, if you look at the music, if you look at the introduction of drugs in that era, there's, there's let's just say there's a lot of smoke <laughs> to hmm. be no fire, you know? So, um, and then, let as me, I say. Let me jump in real quick in, here. Yeah. I just, this coffee is running through me. I'll be right back. <laughs> no worries, no worries. I, keep it, I'll carry keep on entertaining talking. the folks. Yeah, very yeah, good. Yeah, I'll keep on talking. So, uh, yeah, and when you look at the cultural trends and the end point, this is the thing. You've got to look at how we are today. You look at things like OnlyFans. You look at things like uh, the rampant promiscuity. The way that, that sex is talked about, it's openly accepted that casual sex is good is not just good it's what you should be doing there's no appreciation for the dangers of these things and as yeah me and chance have said i do believe there are biological foundations that mean having uh, wanton sex without any care or consideration is not a good thing it's not healthy and there's loads and loads of studies that back this up there's a huge correlation between uh, sexual promiscuity and mental health problems now, you could say this is a chicken or the egg, like does one lead to the other? Yes, probably it's a, a vicious cycle where they kind of go down together. Uh, but even if you say that, uh, that that's a vicious cycle, you're therefore accepting that casual sex is bad and is caused by negative things like drug abuse. So even within that argument, you can still see how these things are not, are not good, right? And... Uh, if you look again at uh, music, the way that music is presented today, there's no talk of love or pair bonding or uh, 
serving together or working together to overcome things, the way that music presents sex is literally pornographic now. You look at things like uh, yeah, Cardi B's music, and she's not alone in that. It's, it's very common. If you look at dance trends, the way dance trends are now, we, yeah, again, Cardi B, the WAP, it's like that's a hyper-sexualized dance that's being uh, put on people, you know, even people who are teenagers will have been watching that, you know, of course they will have. Uh, they're hearing these lyrics and it is, goes back to what we were saying earlier about programming. It is programming people because it's ubiquitous. It's not just one area, he's back, not just one area which is suffering from these things. It's everywhere. It's music, it's film, it's in schools, it's everywhere. So uh, that's another thing that leads me to think this has to be coordinated. Like, why is it that we've, why is there no, or so little pushback on this? Hmm. Like, you can, I, I, while you're away, Chance, I was just saying there's a, there's a very well-known thing that there's statistical correlation between casual sex and mental health problems. Uh, the more, more promiscuous someone is, the more likely they are to have mental health problems. This is well-known in academic circles, but we don't, ever therefore draw the obvious conclusion that you shouldn't be engaging in promiscuous sex if you want to be happy or healthy. Uh, why is that? Why is there so little voices in that? So, uh, and then all of culture as well. It's, it's all, music is pornographic. The, the, the things we listen to is uh, the t television. It's all hyper-sexualized, particularly if it's aimed at teenagers, teenage mm. uh, movies and films are hyper-sexualized like why is this why like and the reason i go back is there's the two reasons i think number one it's to de destabilize society and number two is to open up people to sexual exploitation as well but and i don't mean like just necessarily like uh kind of like pedophile attacks or something right i'm talking about people grooming themselves and it being culturally acceptable for them to like whore themselves out for to put it in a slightly crude sense. You know, yeah, okay. This is, this <laughs> is, well, the more, the older topic. I get, the more I'm willing to just decide f for myself how I want to be in the world. And the thing is, I believe in God. I do. Yeah, me too. Um, and, and not in sort of a lame sense, but in a very thoughtful sense. And, and like I was talking about before, the Bible has some things in it you should contend with. And one of the, you know, Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. Mm. And that's a, that's a refrain that pops into my head so often because I look out at the world and I go, okay, what's happening? Why? Why is it happening? These things that are being promoted by whomever, what is the result of it? And is that good? And I'm not afraid to pass a judgment on a thing, good or bad. I'm not. I, I might be mistaken, but I can say, okay. I can look at it from a biological standpoint. And just as a, just as a little aside, I have a tweet in my bookmarks that I created a while back. Uh, and it says... Society is a biological construct. And then it has a little gif of a guy holding up a sign driving out of his car that says, suck it. And, and the point I make with that is just like, look, you, 
you say that these biological structures are societal constructs, but the reality is that society is a biological construct. It's a function yeah. of our biology. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I take, I take a look at things and I go, okay. And, you know, I, I tend to agree with you that if, if not a specifically coordinated attack, um, as in like there's a, there's a smoke-filled room where there's a bunch of soy boys hanging out deciding the fate of the world, I don't necessarily think it's that way so much as there are a thousand of those rooms and they're all sort of reading the same books, if you yeah. want to think about it in terms of that. And it used to be that everybody was reading the Quran or the Bible, right? And, and now it's like everybody's, everybody is reading white fragility. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and, and books, I mean, books, that's another aspect where it's not obvious to, unless you really think about it, how impactful a book can really be. There's a reason that books like the Bible or the art of war or, mm. uh, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh or uh, Beowulf or the classics, or there's a reason that all these books have such a shelf life. I, I often think I look around at the world and I look at all the content that's being produced. And I think how many of these things are going to be around in two, four, 6,000 years. And the answer is probably not any of them besides the ones that have already been around that long or very, you know, <laughs> one, two of them. And there's, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And it's not because um, it's not because it's just a sort of a preference thing. It's because you shall know them by their fruits. And when I look at the world and I go, okay, marriage is faltering. How's that working out? Well, people are not happy. Religion is faltering. How's that working out? Well, people are not happy. Well, treating the body as a sacred vessel is faltering. How's that working out? People are not happy. And, and it's less even happy than fulfilled, satisfied, doing content. great works. Content. Or, or, or even, I'm not necessarily big on contentment so much as I am in purpose, in mm. meaning, in moving in a direction of your choice. I, I am big on the idea that a person should choose for themselves the direction that they're going to head in. But I'm also big on the idea that you shouldn't be a fucking idiot about how you do that. Because... The one thing that I think, or, or, or perhaps the main thing I think that is a positive that has come out of these um, re-examinations of the way that our society has been built is the idea that we really need to emphasize the idea that personal choice is important. But what we forget or what has been sort of the baby tossed out or the fetus tossed out with the bathwater <laughs> is is the idea that just because personal choice is important doesn't mean that all these things that have momentum behind them are not of value. Is Should marriage be a choice? Should you be forced into a marriage? No, but is it important? Yeah, it is. Is, is being a parent something that should be forced on you? N no, but is being thoughtful about your sexual partners and then being a good parent if you have a kid important? Yeah, of course it is. Is being a fit person who is healthy, important? Yeah. Is being an educated person who has the ability to express themselves on paper and in conversation important? Yeah, it is. Is doing the right thing important? And are there right things? Yes, of course there are. But it shouldn't just be a product of momentum. 
you should choose into those things. And that's what I think. I, I really believe that most of the people who subscribe to these various ideologies, I think that's the core of what they're trying to get at is, I don't want you to tell me I have to be a certain way. I want to choose a certain way. But unfortunately, what's wrapped up into that message is, so choose all the worst shit you can imagine mm. and, and glom onto that because society has been pushing you in one direction. It's like, well, if you think that people are mostly good, then most of what society has traditionally been pushing you towards is probably pretty good. Families are good. Families are great. And just like you said, the studies are all there. Single parent households, yep. they're not, look, I grew up in one and I had problems and my dad's a great dude. He's, he's got his own problems as a person, just like we all do, but he loves me, mm. has always loved me, has always fulfilled his responsibility to be a great parent to me. And my mom is not that way. And she, she comes from a rough past. And, you know, I've learned to just accept that she is who she is, but she can't be a part of my life because it hurts me. And that's, mm. like you said before, we all make sacrifices. And one of the sacrifices I've had to make is I have a family, I have a wife, I have kids, and I am so powerfully impacted by the way that my mother is that I just have to let her live her life and live my life because it negatively impacts me. And when I'm honest about that, then I can look out at the world and I can see, well, these deadbeat dads that bail on their kids, that impacts these kids, whether or not hugely they see it. You know, if, if one of your parents bails on you, it hurts. It hurts. And it, it, it causes certain things in you. Like, well, why did they bail? Was it my fault? And as a little kid, you can't, you know, it's, you don't look at the social milieu and, and look at the, all the contributing factors and go, well, it's, it's probably just a byproduct of cultural momentum and this neo-Marxism. And you know, like, no, <laughs> mommy didn't love me. <laughs> yeah. You have to be an adult and process that. And that's the same thing. That's why uh, this emphasis on children and, and getting to them earlier and earlier and disrupting these ideas so early. And it used to be, it used to be it was young adults and then teenagers. And now we're even moving into the young kids thing where you you have to rise to a certain level of maturity before you have the capacity to process things. You have to be an adult before you can process adult issues. But if they come and they slap you in the face while you're a kid, you have to live with those until you have the cognitive capacity to deal with them. And you might not ever because it might have slapped you so hard that it wrecked your brain. You mm. might go down a path. Yeah. And, and the thing that it comes down to, I think, is control. It's control. Because a, a, a weak person or a damaged person or an overly emotional without being thoughtful person is very easy to control. Because if you're only a reactionary being, then you're only reacting to whatever's playing on the screen. And if they control the education and the government and the media, and you know, I'm saying they, but if these psychological concepts are the dominant concepts that are being played across your screen, your literal screens, but also your mental screen, mm -hmm. then you, and you don't have the platform to stand on. If you don't have principles, if you don't have a strong family life, if you don't have a good understanding of your place in the world, in your society, in the universe, then you're only reacting to what they're putting in front of you. And like you said, the studies are there and who, and who is in academia, it's, it's the same it's the people who are beholden to these same ideas that we're talking about. And so they understand the psychological impact of the things that they're putting on your screen, that they're putting in your ear, 
that they're putting in your heart and they're causing you, you know, so if you can interrupt the childhood or you can interrupt the adolescence or you can interrupt the early adulthood with tools like sex or drugs or music or other forms of entertainment or education, and you can indoctrinate them, then you might permanently disable their ability to create an adult platform, a mature platform from which to think about these things. And then they're under your control. And that's mm -hmm. why it's such a powerful paradigm. And Gramsci was a genius in the way that he looked at these things. This long yep. march of the institutions, it's worked great. Yep. It's worked out just exactly as he envisioned it. You know, he's sitting there in the prisons in Italy, the fascism prison, because they're like, whoa, 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 this guy's too dangerous. <laughs> yeah, he really was. And, and I'm just going to throw this out there and then I'm going to kick it back to you and see what you have to think about yeah, it. Sure. There's also a reason that sex and violence are so strongly correlated in people's minds. There's the creative act and there's the destructive act. And at the same time that sort of our, our cultural hegemony has um, distorted the creative act and turned it into a destructive act in many ways, uh, yeah. there's also this idea of violence or at least giving lip service to the idea that violence should never occur. Hmm. but then being very violent in the way that you convey that message in a lot of ways. Uh, it's, but there's a, I'm trying to be careful about how I say this, but <laughs> sometimes the trash so needs to be taken out, I guess. I, I'm just saying, some, what are we supposed to do with the garbage? How do we, you know, how do we get rid of it? A landfill, a fire, uh, repurposing. There's throughout history, we have these cultural contentions and then people die and we're very contentious right now. And mm -hmm. people have started to die. And I guess I, I, I just, I wonder your thoughts on all of this and, and, I tend to think we're headed towards significant violence, not just mm. in the Western world, but all across it, because China's not, you know, the, the CCP is not opposed to violence in any regard, and they could use a little population thinning, they figure, and the Western world is so divisive right now and being fed by uh, all these different avenues too. You know, the it's just like tossing fuel on the flames. And I guess I wonder your thoughts on, where this is headed, what, and if you think it's, we're just going to have to have that fire before we can rebuild, or 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 if you think we can nip it in the bud now and and sort of change trajectories. So, uh, when it comes down to like the really like nitty gritty of politics, it's so hard to like really understand because. We've got institutions now and technology that we didn't have in the past, right? So this is why I find it hard to go into like a like a historical perspective because if you look at it historically, yeah, you could uh, there would be an uprising or there would be a, a significant uh, or an enemy would just charge over and there's it's a lot more upheaval. Whereas now, because of technology, I think there's a a bit more of entrenchment of power than there was in the past. Uh, so, like, I don't think you could really have 
like a proper like armed uprising in say America, actually. I think the problem is like, okay, so put it this way. If America wasn't a democracy or, or whatever you want to do that, you could put this down very quickly. Like what's happening at the moment. It could be stopped, I think, pretty quickly. You, we have the tracking technology, we have the surveillance technology, we have the, the military capability today that a very small number of people uh, with the right technology can, can wipe out a, a vast swathe of angry people. And I think if you did that a couple of times in general, you put down an uprising, like if with like an overwhelming show of force. I think you can't do that in America. I think that's one of the things with China probably. I mean, I don't know. I can't say anything about China because I don't know what goes on in the country because we don't, they have such a tight control over information, you know? So I think it's hard to really say. It's definitely predictions. I don't think I'm smart enough to make a good prediction on it really. I, or at least I don't, I don't have enough information to, to make a good, a good a good prediction like i don't even know if i'm asking the right questions let alone if i've got the right answers hmm. you know to that to that answer to that particular question uh i think things are unstable at the moment that's quite patent like patently obvious there's a lot of disruption caused by other technologies and yeah these cultural ideas that have led to this um but yeah, I, I, I don't really know how to answer that very well, I'll be honest. Uh, <laughs> I, I, would, <laughs> I would like, you know, sometimes it's good to admit when you, like, you don't know <laughs> for some things. And I think for that, it's, it's a very complicated question. I do think there's going to be more, like, small conflicts, like, going on, like, that's obvious. And there might be some more, like, bound, like, like borders have been pretty, like, pretty set in stone for quite a while. And there might be some more border changes on, like, the Chinese border, et cetera. There's been some stuff there and I wouldn't be surprised if they want to expand. But, you know, I'm not a geopolitical expert, so I can't it may be better, uh, better off asking someone, some uh, the huntsman, getting him on, getting his opinion. He'll, I'm sure he'll have, he'll have a better idea for that. But I would like to go back to something else you said earlier, if that's okay, um, about people Proceed. have uh, individual choices or individual rights to, like, personal responsibility to make a choice right uh and obviously i completely agree with that but where i kind of i think disagree with some other people is i believe that culture has a duty to provide them with good choices there shouldn't be an opening up to them of bad choices we should have a culture which yeah it doesn't say you have to get the get married but it shouldn't be you can get married or be like a 40 year old soy boy playing computer games 12 hours a day you know what I mean? Like there should be some kind of middle ground. <laughs> there should be some kind of middle ground and like typing on Twitter about how oppression's terrible. And, you know, I do believe that we have, uh, and that's kind of what we have to do somehow. I'm not sure exactly how, but we have to have a reshaping back to this cultural, uh, a cultural rebalance where there's, there's still choice. It's not like literally like you're a robot and you have to like come out this way, but there are pressures to go into certain ways or that certain things are completely closed off. Like for, for me personally, I would literally just ban porn. I see no redeeming feature to it. I, I, I would censor porn. Yeah, I know censorship's not a particularly popular word, but I would, I'd just ban it. Like what, what purpose does it serve really? It has so many negative effects. I would, I would just get rid of it. And I think 
yeah, people might struggle to adapt to that and there's ways around the technology. But if, but in general, people aren't, if you have that, that barrier to watching pornography, for example, this is just an example, uh, people can still get around it today, right? But the majority aren't going to bother. That's the thing. And you've got to get to the point where society makes the majority good. You're never going to get a utopia where everyone's good, but you want to make it as hard as possible for someone to be a fuck up. Not as easy as possible yeah. like it is today. Um, and I, I, I think that's where our culture really falls down. I do think there's a duty from government, from the people in charge, whoever they are, uh, to, to shape a culture where that happens. And I think that's traditionally what we had. We traditionally had a culture which did have, have yeah, negative mechanisms such as shame that uh, are culturally enforced, by the way, not enforced by, by the government, but they're culturally enforced, which kind of push people into the right direction. And yes, you don't have to do it, but you're going to suffer for not doing it. So there's going to be consequences for these negative actions. So you've got to incentivize and also uh, disincentivize uh, certain behaviors. I'm actually someone who is in favor of like bringing back some kind of like movie censorship as well. Like, the traditional like movie production code. I don't think, I don't think that we really need to watch movies that uh, generate a culture that is that leads to people like glorifying bad deeds. I just don't think we really need to see that. Yeah, it's entertainment, but why why are we letting entertainment take precedence over societal cohesion? Like, and maybe that's an unpopular view, but uh, I do think there is there is a as a certain weight like culture has power to inform people especially in the age of mass media like we're saying before the right book the right book can change the world you know, communist manifesto the bible uh, they're all books that have they're cultural culturally produced things that have shaped the world and therefore there's a responsibility that comes with that they have power hmm. and whenever you have power you need to have some kind of uh, moral or ethical code that comes with it uh, that for me is very, very important. You can't have power for the sake of power. That's when you get abuses of power, right? Uh, and that doesn't mean power is bad. I'm not saying power is bad. I started off way back saying that hierarchy is, is natural. It's, you're always going to have these hierarchies, but you have to have uh, ethics with them. You have to have morality with them. If you look back for Bushido code, for example, yeah, they killed people, but they had an ethical code that may, meant that it wasn't just aimless slaughter, you know? And to stretch that metaphor to today, I don't think we have an ethical code with relate, relating to powerful institutions of culture. And I think we need that. Uh, and yeah, mo all the free speech advocates are gonna say, I'm, I'm calling for censorship. And yeah, I am actually. I think we, we have a moral duty to, <laughs> to, uh, to look after people. And I know that's an unpopular opinion, but you, you can't just, uh, it's the same when you, you even started off this. When I tweet, I understand that people are going to read this and some people are going to get the wrong message from it. So I will tweak the tweet to try and make it either less divisive or more open to a bit of interpretation. So if they fill in the gap, the blanks and put their own perspective on it, that's on them, not me. But I don't try and uh, place it too divisive if possible. I obviously fall into that trap sometimes, but... Um, because I understand there's a responsibility that comes with having this influence on people. Even I'm a very small account, people still read what I say. They're still, I'm still affecting people's lives. So there's a responsibility that comes with that. And I think we have to have the same with cultural institutions. Um, 
And that's why I would, yeah, I would just, I would ban porn, for example. I just, when I, I lived in Indonesia, for example, Indonesia, yeah, porn is legal. You, you cannot get porn. You just cannot. And I remember being there and I, I'm still not quite shaped out of it. Now I've, I've not watched porn in years. But at that point, I remember trying to go on a porn site and being like, huh? <laughs> like, why can I not? You know, and I talked with somebody about it and they're like, yeah, of course, porn's illegal here. Like, because it's, yeah, it's, it has, and they just said, yeah, it has really bad effects on your brain. Why would the government let you watch that? And it was like, huh, you, it kind of makes sense, actually, when you tell me like that. <laughs> so we've got to remember as well, like, that, that, that we kind of get lost in this in the West and thinking that the West is how they do everything, right? Mm. Uh, and the modern West, and we don't, we think about history is very negative if we go back to traditional, like paternal or patriarchal cultures. They're negative. They're controlling. They're, they're, uh, they limit freedom of expression, freedom of speech, etc. But uh, when I lived in Indonesia, and I got to know the culture very well, uh, my wife is Indonesian, uh, and I went through. She comes from. I talk a little bit. I try not to talk about my relationship online, but uh, had to go through a process that was very much a traditional patriarchal process. I had to meet the family, meet, the, meet everyone in a big community setting. They all met me and talked about everything. And like, it was how things used to be done. And it made perfect sense because it's, it's testing them. It's testing your marriage partner, testing whether they are strong enough to be able to sit in a room of 20 other men. Even for me, speaking a language I can't understand. You know, speaking in front of them can sit them and can give a speech in front of them, tell you about, tell you about yourself, meet your family. What's your family like? And we, we see this today as like, oh, people should be able to just choose their own partner. But if you look at the divorce rate, people are not very good at choosing, you know, yeah. obviously. Uh, and maybe these, these old cultural institutions, while they may be limited freedoms in some ways, they actually led to good outcomes. Uh, and there's, again, this all kind of ties in together. Uh, and I, I think we have to go back to that, particularly with, with, with our culture, because I, I listened to a Cardi B song for the first time when I was re reading a, writing a thread recently. I just thought, I know I've heard about her on Twitter and stuff, but I've never listened to any of her music. I'll just listen to it just so I can like at least get a, get a feeling for it. And I was shocked at how, how pornographic and how vulgar it was. I was generally like, wow, I didn't realize it was this bad. And there's, that's something that, that teenage girls are for sure listening to. Teenage boys as well are for sure listening to. And I see no redeeming quality to that music. I don't see why, why, why we need that music. Maybe some, like this is on Periscope, maybe someone can write in the chat and say why I'm wrong, but I can't read it. <laughs> but uh, I, I just don't see any, I don't see why we need that. Like you hmm. can say it's freedom of expression, but it's not just banning it for the sake of like, like uh, uh, just to exercise power. No, it's, it's placed within a, a, a way of viewing the world that sees that you have a moral obligation as, as, a, as somebody who's put on a pedestal as an idol for millions of people to listen to, to provide something that isn't going to negatively impact their life. Hmm. You know, <clears throat> there's a, Maybe I'm not perfectly in alignment with you on the censorship thing. That's that's fine. But I, I but I would say, I would say that, and maybe I maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Um, but I would say this: it is so obvious that something like porn 
is damaging. It just yeah. is. It, it, it buggers your psychology. It, 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 uh, it sort of hij hijacks the, the procreative process and, and the imagery and the, and the understanding of relationships and things. It's just, it's just bad news. And I've, I've had this argument with people before. They say, well, what about violence in, in games or movies? It's like, well, it's not the same. If you look at the, if you look at the research, violence in media can cause a momentary spike in your tendency to be aggressive or violent, but it goes away after just a couple of minutes. But sexual imagery has lasting long-term psychological impacts and, and shapes the way that you behave in ways that are both immediate and long-term. And it's not healthy. It's, it just is not good for people to be exposed to this kind of stuff. And, and I think Maybe it does need to be censored. Maybe it doesn't. But what certainly needs to happen is for that thing that I just said to be said. It needs to be made obvious to people that this shit's bad for you. Don't do it. You know, it, and it used it used to be even if you had say a Playboy or your dad had a Playboy or something like this. You know, it was you weren't supposed to look at it, and then you found it, and that was sort of like a coming of age thing. But then. You know, you just like, that was all that there was is you could see some ladies boobs in a playboy. And then that was that it's like, okay, well now I'm going to go get married and have a family. But, but you know, and then even then it was like, your mom didn't want you looking at that. You, and your dad was like, stay away from my playboy son. That's not for you. Uh, but, but now it's like, well, you know, <laughs> there's a, there's, there's porn for every type and it's, it should be obvious to anybody who's ever looked at porn that this is, exploitative for the people involved it's exploiting yep. you it's just bad news and there's so many other things that are like that where maybe we need to censor stuff maybe we don't but we should be very honest about our communication but the problem is and and this goes this ties into what you're saying about, about having a moral code tied to the institutions of power if you have some sleazy bastard in a position of power who has no moral code and in fact maybe as a psychopath who's interested in putting that power as a tool to get one over on other people because they like that, which tends to be the case, uh, especially without being tied to a strong moral code, right? It's like, okay, um, if we create an opportunity for people to gain power without having any sort of backbone of ethics or morality or responsibility, then who's going to take that power? Well, the people who just like power for power's sake, and that's a psychopath, and they're going to hurt you. That's what they do. They like it. Yep. It's like, okay, where's the, where's the disconnect here? And it's the same thing with all these other things in our media and our education. It's like, okay, if we don't have some sort of idea of right versus wrong, uh, then people are going to choose the easy answer. And the easy answer is almost always the wrong answer. Should you have a meaningful relationship with somebody and get married and have kids and that's why you have sex? Or should you masturbate to nasty porn with people who are being exploited? It's like there's, a, there's, there's clearly one right answer and one wrong answer in that situation. So why can't, we just, <laughs> yeah. why can't we just say that? And if we've lost the ability to say that, maybe that's where the censorship does need to happen. Maybe that's where big daddy government needs to step in and say, nope, not even an option. But I don't like that option. I want people just to mm. choose the right thing. And that's why I have conversations like this. It's like, please, anybody, one or two of you even, if you're watching porn now, stop it. Yeah, it's wrong. Dude, really. Stop it. Yeah. 
<laughs> your life will <laughs> just, get just your life will it, get and then uh, you know i will have made a difference 100 yeah. percent. there's two and and then you'll be a things. better influence on the people around you yeah no so you go ahead no i was just gonna say if there's two things you should take from this it's if you're a man go to the gym even if you're a woman go to the gym start lifting weights and stop watching porn and you will you will literally have a better life like it's very it seems kind of like i don't know bit like uh faux to say that it's like oh it's just so too easy to say but they, they will make two big improvements to your life like really will yeah and you'll learn how life works a lot better too <laughs> yeah i want to go back well, as look, well man, and, man. like oh go on go on no you go no, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. You got something to say. say okay. It. So I was uh, going to say, like, when it comes to, like, all this kind of ties together, actually. Uh, like, what you're saying is, if with power, without a moral code, people are going to fall in to do, do, do the wrong thing. I mean, that is basically enshrined within the Bible. That, that, that is what religion provided for us for the longest time. It provided us a moral code from which we could act, whether, whether it was Christianity, whether it was Islam, whether it's... Uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever, there is a moral code within that, or at least a cohesive uh, belief system that will prevent people from falling into doing the wrong thing or falling into do the right, uh, the, the bad path. Because, uh, yeah, we all have, to use the Christian term, we all have a sinful nature that is what we're battling against, as we're battling against our, our desire to sin, right? That's within us. And the way of goodness is to resist that and to go against it. And that's kind of where the whole of self-improvement comes from it's that kind of deferred gratification or that self-reflection or that taking that moment not to give in to your your bodily lusts uh, whatever they may be and to choose the other path and one of the really dangerous things about all this has been the way the same institutions i was talking about that have attacked like sex attack relationships have also undermined religion uh so there's a whole process that's gone into this that is uh it's been all encompassing actually it's really uh it's it's not just a small thing that's just one area of society everything is connected to everything else in culture which is what makes it very hard to talk about it's completely multivariate you can never say like this one thing change this and that's it no there's always maybe like 10 other things that can moderate how this gets to this you know there might be 10 other uh, things and one of them you change it and they go here you know uh, so it's it's what makes it very difficult to talk about that said there are hmm. some things which are definitely have more of an effect than others and are just bad like one of the things i would argue is yeah sexual promiscuity as we talked about i don't i don't see any any redeeming any redeeming traits to that so culture there's a there's a thing that i have talked about quite extensively in my online career and I've written about it quite a bit. Uh, and like I said, I'm, I'm big on choice, but I'm, I'm also big on narrowing your own field of choices. And, and what I've yeah. written about and talked about is this idea of personal sacred practice. And I, and I've written sort of a process for people to understand more about what I mean, but essentially what it comes down to is, um, you need to do a few things in your life to be able to make your choices meaningful. And, and one of them is that you need to connect with something greater than yourself. You could call yeah. it God, you could call it your higher power, you could call it whatever you want, whatever name you want to give to it. But there needs to be something that's more important than you that you are in service to. Yeah. 
and the next thing is that you need to develop your principles, your values, your code. And I, I have some exercises to guide people to examine themselves and figure out, well, what are the things about me that I that I want to live by? What are my rules for life? Not Jordan Peterson's rules for life, not the Bible's rules for life, although maybe those are your rules, but you need to look inside yourself and find out what are the rules that I want to live by. And then you align your actions and you align your thoughts and you align the way that you act in the world according to those principles. And by doing this, you then constrict that field of choice because there's only certain things that are going to line up with those principles. And you have a hierarchy of those mm -hmm. principles too. It's like, what is most important to me out of all of these? You put them in order. And when you do that, what happens is that your life starts going in a direction. And when you move in a direction, instead of just sort of here or there, or just kind of devolving down this spiral staircase mm -hmm. of doom, you start seeing things being built. You start building a real life for yourself based upon these things and you, and you make progress. And the reason that I created this small system and, I, and I'm doing more work around it and eventually it's going to be something that I um, re-offer to the world in a more meaningful sense. And this is a lot of the work that I do is trying to help people understand that choice is important, but making the right choice is most important. And making the right choice for you comes down to knowing who you are and what that even means to you. And when you know your code, and it can change. Maybe you're wrong right now. But certainly mm -hmm. if you don't examine yourself, you're not going to be doing the things that you know you should be doing because you don't know what you should be doing. You're just feeding off of other stuff. So if you pick a direction to move in it, then you have the ability to adjust later because it's not optimal for you or it's not aligning with the most important rules or whatever. But if you don't even know who, what your rules are and you're just taking the rules that are presented to you, it's like, well, that's look at what's happening. And I think that's, you're absolutely right is what I'm getting at here, I suppose, is that religion has traditionally provided that code for us. And, and I think probably most of those rules and most people align with this sort of overlap between all the major, uh, you know, societal programming systems or religions, if you will, that most of those rules and all of them are, are pretty much the same. There's some variants here and there, yeah. Like a, what name do you use or how often do you pray? But most of the rules are pretty much the same. You know, you, you serve, you have a family, you, you don't accept shittiness into your life and you sort of humble yourself before the reality that you are minuscule in the world and that this process or this being that created or led to you being here is going to continue on well past you and you will serve your time here. And then whatever happens after that, you know, it's, it's tough to say, but you better make sure that this shit counts right here. And, <laughs> and I guess, <laughs> I guess with that, man, we've been going now for almost a hundred minutes and we've talked about a lot of salient issues, frankly, you know, uh, there's not a, there's not a lot of people out there who aren't contending with some of these ideas, whether it's with substance abuse or, or sexual, um, promiscuity mm -hmm. or a lack of meaning in their lives. And I guess what I want to do is just kind of give the opportunity to tie it all together. And, and like we talked about before we recorded, if, if a young man or young woman sit in front of you and they're saying, listen, Jack, 
I'm on board with most of the stuff I heard from you today, and, and I'm, I'm feeling confused. I'm not sure which direction to head in. I know maybe that the things I'm doing in my life aren't the best, but I, I just, I really, I'm not sure what are the first couple steps I should take. And, and I wanted to ask you what you think I should do in a general sense to help make some meaning and progress in my life. And if that person was sitting in front of you, what, what, bit of advice would you offer them to kind of give them something concrete to do right now to begin to take control of their journey? So obviously I'm going to do the, the general dodge. It depends on the exact details of their life because it would give a different, uh, different, different answer. But there's some things that some general principles are hundred percent hold true. I've already mentioned a couple of them. Let, start going to the gym. You know, your self-respect with yourself starts there. I tweeted that earlier today. It starts when you start taking care of your body. Get your health in, in check. Most people today are incredibly unhealthy and they don't even realize it because we've normalized ill health. They're, they're the two things that I would, number one, get and start devoting your time and your effort to them because in modern society, it's not easy. It's not easy to be healthy. You have to literally fight against modernity. Uh, number three, if you're in a really bad environment that you think is like harming your chances of uh, of progressing get out of it move hmm. like leave get a job somewhere or if you've got some money together literally just get on i mean it's hard at the moment because you can't bloody travel but uh it, get on a bus somewhere and go somewhere and just jump headlong into it even i i'd, I'd even I'd advise against planning out of it planning at all just see where you end up see where it takes you you'd be surprised at the opportunities that open up to you when you are open to uh taking these kind of risks uh this happened to me a lot in my life i, I when i went traveling i didn't plan at all never i just didn't plan and the that that's not something i would recommend doing as you get older and more like purposeful in your life but if you are a little bit lost i think it, actually it can be something that's helpful putting yourself in something that you don't expect you don't know what you're going to get out of it and seeing what opportunities arise and obviously be con conscious of that don't go to another country and then go go live in a fucking crack house or something that's not what i'm saying <laughs> like go go uh go somewhere and see what opportunity like even within your like if you live in america for example you've got huge opportunity to move to different places and find different environments you know like we don't really have that same in england we don't uh, it's so small it's the same pretty much everywhere you go so you can move somewhere find a job opportunity and suddenly you'll be surrounded by new people the new a new set of feelings a new goal and purpose and that can really be something that can reboot your life sometimes that but that depends how far down you are if you're pretty bad i would recommend that you know sometimes you've got to just make that leap of faith and see where it takes you um but i would also not like say that to everyone it depends a little bit on your character as well like some people uh might might not be the best advice but for some people it might be for a lot of people i think it's very good advice and something else i would recommend is if, if you're not religious i i'm not trying to like convert you to a religion but go to a like a, a bible study group go to a mosque go to a, a gurdwara whatever it may be go there and find a mentor because you will in those institutions that's one of the few places where you can still find an older mentor who will who can teach you about stuff and if you you may not be open to 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 the religious aspect of it but you they, they don't mind actually 
if you're close to it. So just go there and find a mentor and like talk to them and let them give you some advice and they'll have like, even if you don't believe in God, the amount of wisdom contained within those religious texts as we've described is limitless. And, uh, you, you, that will be something that could really, really help you as well. Um, join a Bible study group, anything like that. And again, they're more than willing to, to accept you. Uh, they'll be pleased to, in fact. So uh, think about doing that as well, because there's a lot of wisdom in those, in those texts. It doesn't matter where you go. Isn't whatever's open to you, whatever culture you're in, whatever. Maybe something speaks to you more. Like, you know, you've already, you like Buddhist philosophy. You go, go to a local Buddhist temple and you know, study there for a bit. They'll be happy to have you. And you'll learn a lot. And if you're a partier, I mean, go hang out with the Krishnas. They're a good time. Surprisingly so. Yeah, there. <laughs> just as a funny little aside, I I was in karate from the time I was eight until I was sixteen. Karate, excuse me. And <laughs> my my instructor was, and still is, still remains one of the coolest people I've known in my life. A great teacher, very effective, very patient. Just a just an easygoing, happy, lucky guy. But he demanded respect. Mm. I wouldn't say he demanded it as he so much as he commanded it. He commanded respect because he was good at what he did. Still is to this day. Um, and I, when I was maybe 21 or 22, I went to a festival of colors at the local Krishna temple, dancing around, throwing chalk in the air, dancing around in effigy. And there he was on stage um, playing guitar and playing accordion and playing bagpipes and chanting. I had no idea he was a Krishna the whole time. And that sort of opened my eyes more than just the, the fun aspect of going to the Festival of Colors. It was like, oh, well, this guy's one of the coolest guys I've known in my life. And this is the this is the wisdom tradition that he has subscribed to. Maybe there's something to this. And, and I'm into comparative study when it comes to religion. I like looking at the different ones and, and trying to absorb as much from as many different avenues as I can. And, and I can, that's why I can speak to the idea that it's mostly all of it is mostly aligned. It's, it varies very little. It's sort of in the, sort of in the exterior stuff that most of it varies. Most of it's pretty solidly aligned around say 10 principles, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, beyond that, man, um, what I want to say to you is I'm just, I'm appreciative that you took the time to come and, and share your mind and share your wisdom and share your thoughts with me and with the audience. And um, I'm grateful that we were able to make this work and align our schedules a little bit since you're halfway across the world or all the way across the world, I guess. And um, is there anything that you feel like you want to add to the conversation before I give you a chance just to remind people where they can find you and to plug your book a little more overtly? Uh, I, well, I'd like to thank you as well for making the time for me. Uh, if people don't know, Chance got up very early for this podcast, and I'm very appreciative of uh, of you doing that, making that sacrifice, uh, and for having me on. As you say, we, it, it's awkward, my time schedule uh, for for these kind of interviews, so I appreciate you being willing to, to do that. And other than that, uh, I just think if people... Uh, liked what they they heard or if they think i'm an idiot feel free to tell me so on twitter i'm more than happy to entertain <laughs> both 
both uh, both sides of it. Let me know what you liked, what you didn't. I'm always open to criticism and to critique as well, uh, because that's how you you yeah you improve your your ideas and etc. So uh, and if you did like what I had to say, I'd uh, I'd recommend like I have a blog uh, where I write about these issues, uh, probably a bit more structured than the way the way I spoke because. That's just the difference with, between something you can edit and something you can't. So yeah, I'd recommend checking out my blog or yeah, following me on Twitter. And I've also just recently reduced, uh, released, not reduced it, uh, released a book which uh, weaponized sex, which we mentioned uh, briefly within there, which talks about these issues in a much better light that produces like a, a cohesive argument where I look up this at all sides. But it's still also pretty easy to read. I try to make it not too jargonistic and not too uh not too heavy it's it's a proper it's not a 30 page ebook it's 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 a it's a proper read but it's it's light to read it's light and easy so yeah maybe if you enjoyed it you want to really dial in the arguments i'd uh, I'd obviously recommend checking that out and you'd be supporting me which is great (laughs) and i encourage the folks to do that uh jack is a thoughtful guy you could go over to his blog and and What's the name of your blog? Thinking Peach. Is that- uh, Thinking Peach. Yeah, thinkinpeach.com. Same on Twitter at thinkinpeach. Or uh, think in peach. Yeah. Depending on. Uh- uh, I don't <laughs> do much. <laughs> I know this guy. He's a gay guy, and he's from London. And he said to me one time, he goes, "Chance, you're the weirdest person I've ever met." <laughs> <laughs> But he, he cracked me up one time because he's like, some of the people from where I live say month. Can you imagine month? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that big of a deal, Tom. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> but I guess that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but I, I wanted, unrelated. I wanted to unrelated. Not yeah. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, they have a word here for a type of fruit in the language it just cracks me up the word is it's not a word it's just a noise yeah 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 i think your pronunciation was better than mine it just cracks me up every time i like hear that <laughs> reminds hey, me uh, yeah. whatever whatever you got to do to get a little entertainment out of the out of the situation you find yourself in. Yeah, if you if you can't <laughs> laugh, if you can't laugh, what's the point, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> hey, we, we could have a whole other conversation about that. But okay, okay. So look, uh, folks, go go read his blog. He's a very thoughtful writer. I think you'll really take something from it. And if you like the conversation, if you like the blog, I definitely encourage you to go get the book. And I just want to say thank you again for taking the time and it was no big deal for me to get up. I'm up early almost every day anyway. Uh, so it was a pleasure to have a conversation with you. And I think if you're good, then I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. In that case, this has been the Logos and Trivical podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been Jack Peach. This has all been allegedly, and we are out.